listening to the second episode of the SF Weekly Podcast. Um, this week, we're going to be talking to two writers who contributed to this week's issue. Uh, but before we do that, I uh, am joined by Kevin Hume, uh, our photo editor. Uh, he splits his time between SF Weekly and our sister paper, the San Francisco Examiner. Hello, Kevin. How's it going, Nick? Going good, man. Hey, crazy time we're living through. Uh, last week, we we all kind of shared uh, our thoughts on um, living through uh, the pandemic and the demonstrations that we're seeing. And while our staff writers um, are mostly able to report from home, although sometimes they go out into the field, you can't uh, you can't take photos from home. Yet there's no working for from home for you, is there, Kevin? No, no, there's not. Um... Yeah, it's been interesting. I've been most mostly the only staffer to be out and about throughout this whole pandemic. Um, at first, there was a, a conscious choice that uh, I made with my girlfriend where I would uh, not take public transit, despite always taking public transit beforehand uh, to travel from Oakland to the, to the city and cover things. So I would borrow her car, and that was absolutely different from me being used to walking everywhere and jumping on BART and Muni, uh, running around the city on my feet, uh, to just running around in a car. Uh, it felt really strange. There was no traffic. Um, there were no people practically. Um, and so that, that took, uh, you know, some adjusting, but it just was weird to sort of be out and see nothingness. And then, you know, as time has gone by to see how the city has sort of come back to life in a sense. Um, people have returned, traffic has returned. Um, and now I'm back taking public transit again, albeit yeah. a little warily, uh, just trying to be precautious and safe. Um, but, you know, there's been a lot that's happened in the three months since, uh, you know, everybody's been told to stay at home. Uh, I covered a few caravan protests, which were interesting because, you know, anytime there's a demonstration, it's all about, you know, people and being close to them. And um, it was interesting to see how people tried to sort of think about how to do a socially distanced protest. And then the George Floyd incident happened and the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests happened. And now I'm back to sort of being, you know, almost shoulder to shoulder with people again, but we're all wearing masks and it's, it's very interesting and very different from yeah. just, how do you, you know, three months ago. How does like, how does that feel to, to be out at a protest? How did it feel the very first time that you were out at a, at a big protest? It was a little, uh, not intimidating, but you know, just a little freaky. <laughs> My spider sense, I don't know, was going off. Like <laughs> I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Um, you know, but like, I knew that something important was happening, you know, like I came into the city on May 30th, uh, a little late, uh, from when we first had seen some of the protests breaking out the day before. And I kind of was trying to find them. Like I, I started when they were trying to go back onto the Bay bridge cause they had blocked the, the Bay bridge the night before. Right. Uh, I started there and just was wandering around until I made it to the mission and they were outside the police station. And then I was like, all right, there's a fair amount of people here. And, you know, I started weaving through people like I used to. And I was like, this is a little weird. Um, yeah. 
But, you know, it was about capturing the message of the protests and, you know, trying to see if they were going to engage police, which they absolutely did. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, as the night wore on and they started going more places, I was wondering they were going to go and do anything sort of that might be looked at in a bad light. And as we got toward Union Square, there were some broken windows and things like that. And I thought, okay, uh, how much time before they actually start trying to engage the police? And, right, and um, what's going what's gonna to happen at that point? Right, so um, they, you know, there was a point where they broke into the Westfield Mall, which I didn't realize that that had actually happened because I was a and little bit behind. By the way, that's where our offices are. Right, secret, yeah. Secret location deep within the Westfield Mall. It's kind of yes. like a season three <laughs> of Stranger Things, where the, yeah, the Russians exactly. have the have the uh, the hideout within the mall that's us that's exactly us we're, you know, hundreds of feet below ground um <laughs> so we you know i was getting closer to uh where there was a line of police um by the mall and all of a sudden a huge rush of multiple police vans and vehicles came and they all rushed the scene with what I don't know if they were tear gas canisters, but to me look like tear gas canisters and just mm-hmm. blanketly pointing them at anybody and yelling at them to get back, get back. And they pointed, you know, they stuck one in my face despite me having a press badge, which I immediately Damn. held up with my camera. I don't know if it was rubber Damn. bullets, if it was tear gas canisters. So it was kind of like they were pointing like a shotgun or something like that at you. And at the, at the tip of it, it had these, these whatever they were they were supposed to be that yeah like you could see like uh like a sort of belt looking thing there's a couple photos i have of of these officers after they you know rushed in pointing them at some of the protesters um and they just they look menacing you know not just the police but those things you know you're like i i didn't know what they were so i was like all right you know but i'm like holding up a badge i'm like i'm supposed to be allowed to cover this stuff and you know we've seen multiple instances since those first protests of police uh going after journalists either inadvertently or advertently uh i've seen definitely both sides of that so i was a little freaked out but nothing happened but it's still a little freaky to be there and to sort of be in the chaos of all of that right Um, because you're not sure you're just not sure what's going to happen when when you're there um and but then you you kept you've continued to go back out um and and yeah. so that was the first that was the first night you just described right i mean what yeah, have the that was what has the protests been like since then for the most part they have been peaceful um there was that really massive one that was on june i want to say june 3rd in the um, in, in the mission, in the mission. yeah yeah that, that was, was the they think one. like 20 things they're saying like 20,000 people i mean some estimates yeah i've seen 16,000 as a as a comfortable number um it was huge uh and you know again weaving through a crowd of that size was a little uh daunting uh a little freaky Ah, so what are, um, I'm put you on the spot now. Can you think of like, (laughs) can you think of like, does anything come to mind that was just like, you know, just a, a surprising, um, moment, whether it's like a, a, a WTF type thing or or more of like a act of compassion or anything come to mind that you, you saw while you were out there? The thing that stands out, uh, for sure was, uh, in front of mission police station on the, the large, the June 3rd protest there was uh, two police officers who took a knee. Uh, one was oh, yeah. one was black. And I think 
The other was Asian, but I, I don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but two police officers took a knee and then, uh, you know, I believe either the next day or the day after it was, uh, it came out that the black officer was, uh, either suspended or put on leave. Uh, my colleague, Michael Barba wrote a story about that in the examiner. Um, but that, you know, that felt like a really powerful moment when he, he took a knee and, and they both took a knee, uh, yeah. people were, people were, you know, enthused and they were saying, quit your job. <laughs> you <know? laughs> quit your job. Um, yeah. They, they're saying that, you know, and things like that. Um, and it was, it was a powerful moment. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything else. I mean, just, I, I really enjoyed seeing the sort of party atmosphere outside city hall after the curfew that it just, yeah. it felt like even though there was this massive line of SFPD and, and uh, San Francisco sheriff's deputies just sort of standing there that and people were standing in front of them of course but there it just felt like a fun atmosphere where people were like you know defying curfew and it was all good and nothing was going to happen obviously it turned out later in the evening people did get detained in the mission yeah um but you know i mean it, it was just an interesting crazy night thanks kevin um i'll catch you next time we'll be right back Hey, everybody, we're back with Will Vincent. He is an eighth grade English teacher at a public charter school in Oakland, and he is the author of our latest Quarantine Thoughts essay about um, what it was like to close out the school year during the pandemic and uh, teach his teach his students over the Internet. Um, welcome, Will. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So um Let's just start by like maybe walking me through what it was like to suddenly uh, make the pivot to uh, distance learning. Sure. Um, so I'm in my third year as a um, teacher. Uh, I've been teaching um, eighth grade English um, yeah, for three years now and going into my fourth. And I actually just finished up my credential program. I got my credential while teaching, while working full time. But yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, extremely shocking as it was for the entire nation for me to suddenly have to leave the classroom and start trying to (laughs) teach online. Um, Luckily, I'm like the kind of person who's like constantly experimenting with stuff. Um, I am constantly trying to try out new lessons. I'm trying to try out new programs with the students. Um, So in that sense, I was kind of, there was a there was a strange sense of excitement about like trying to figure this thing out online. And initially uh, I initially like right after we went into quarantine, I just started uh, doing lessons on YouTube without any kind of uh, directive from my school. Our school was still kind of shocked and scrambling to kind of get things together for as many schools were in um, Oakland. Um, but, and after a few weeks, they did get something together, but I was like with my kids on the last day, right before we went in, I was, um, fussing with YouTube, with YouTube live. Um, mm-hmm. and we were, um, my, actually my students were better at it than I was. So there was this right. kind of really fun kind of moment 
where all the kids are like at this point they're pretty excited that they're going to get this like vacation you know yeah. slash kind of scared <laughs> uh yeah. nervous um giddy like all sort of like standing behind me uh in our advisory <laughs> as we are <laughs> trying to figure out this youtube live thing and they're like no click that and then you have to do this and you have to download obs which is a streamer platform which will allow you to put your face in the corner like they're experts on this stuff they like oh, live wow. their lives online so they like know the stuff much better than me um so the next day i was like all right 11 a.m i'll be on youtube live come you know into the chat and it's basically like this twitch there all my students are in like a twitch chat room <laughs> okay. and luckily they can log in with their gmail uh, their school gmail so they have to use their real names they don't have the anonymity of being able ah. to like troll and stuff you know so uh, but, I mean, that yeah doesn't necessarily stop them from trolling as you kind of get into it <laughs> i mean yeah there's so, many, there's so many challenges that you discuss in in the in the piece and i mean some of them are kind of more you know, funny and, 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 and WTF type stuff. And, and some of them are, are more serious. I mean, can you talk about kind of the range of challenges that you've um, encountered? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was mentioning in the piece, like there's, I mean, there's inevitable trolling. I was honestly like really lucky with this class. It's a, it's a generally a, like for eighth grade is a tough year. Like middle school is tough. I remember um, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Middle school is tough. I mean, a lot of kids are just like you say, like developmentally sociopathic for back, lack of a better term. Like, you know, it's just um, it's just that time where you start experimenting with authority and you start feeling like I'm ready to start pushing back. You get the eighth grade version of senioritis um, mm. where kids start to get checked out. So it's on top of everything. They're already kind of over middle school. Yeah. Um, but um, I was lucky to have a compassionate class this year of students who I was able to build a relationship that was kind of like, you could just kind of be like, can you guys just be cool, you know, uh, today? And I could talk to them transparently about what I was feeling at any given time. And they responded well to that, well for that, for the most part. I mean, there's always trolling is going to be there, but I think you know, I've, I've gotten better at making sure that I'm not like the butt of the joke or that I'm not mm. being the quote unquote boomer, as I reference in my piece, like <laughs> not being the, not being the kind of like goofy boomer. Who's like so easy to troll, you know, like don't yeah. be trollable is like my, my main advice for yeah, anyone that, trying like, to get on in the middle sticky note, like on your, <laughs> on your yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, I mentioned in the piece, like there's funny stuff, like they would spam F in the chat yeah. room uh which um or they would uh you know chain like they figured i don't know how they did this but in zoom you can once we moved to zoom they could change their face into a green screen or it picks up your face as a green screen so they could put weird images over their face just bizarre stuff like you can imagine like having 110 eighth graders in a zoom call yeah, and and so like other things made it difficult uh, besides the trolling, right? I mean, you talked about um, kids. You, you could hear like kids maybe had to take care of their siblings in the background. I mean, what are some of the more serious yeah. things that you encountered? And the thing, you know, as a teacher, you have to step up as like you know, give pep talks and and be a little bit of a mental health provider. Yeah, um, that was that. that was kind of my um, that was my initial sort of reason 
for wanting to get a jump start on teaching online. It wasn't that like, if I miss a single day, they're going to fall behind. That is the case that if you miss a day or a few days, students do, there is learning loss that happens. Um, even like a three day mm -hmm. weekend, you feel it. Mm -hmm. um, but my real sort of reason for the, I think, wanting to suddenly just get online with them was that I knew that it was going to be very isolating. Um, that just the the piece of like just wanting to have them have a place online where they could hang out and talk to each other and kind of creating a safe place for them to come together and socialize um online uh i think is actually more important than any of the kind of uh educational stuff that i could give them um mm -hmm. just giving mm -hmm. them a sense of community and togetherness and uh you know there's a lot of students who you know, aren't going to be allowed to go outside, period. There's students who, yeah, like I said, are taking care of a three-year-old younger sibling, um, parents who are working three jobs, um, who are not there to make sure that their kid is going into the Zoom lesson. Um, yeah. So there's a huge equity issue with distance learning um, in general. Well, I mean, in that, in that vein and in the challenges that you had in just the final few months of school, what are you thinking about when you think about that there's kind of no no confirmed end in sight here i mean what like what's school gonna look like what what are you what are you thinking about yeah so um well i'm gonna be teaching summer school online in a few weeks um doing a, t a couple weeks of that okay. um for just some s students who need like extra support um on like literacy skills and stuff um but the fall we have a much more rigorous sort of schedule planned for students. Um, we're going to do like a real schedule where they actually rotate through like 28 person classes. So it's going to be much mm. more manageable in that respect of just like actually getting students to talk and engage. Um, that was kind of like the big breakthrough that I had as an educator this year was just the importance of student talk and the importance yeah. of small group discussion and actually giving them roles in their small group discussions, having a facilitator, a recorder, um, really uh, encouraging them to talk before we get into writing um, and having debates and Socratic seminars. Um, so yeah, next year um, in the fall, like I'm, I mean, I'm nervous about going into distance learning, uh, continue distance learning and the learning loss that will result. But I would say that I'm even more worried about getting sent in early before it's safe. I mean, this whole thing has just blown a hole inside of society. And I think that things have been torn asunder in a lot of ways. So I think, you know, I think some change is coming for education. Like I'm thinking about my curriculum in terms of Black Lives Matter now, and I'm thinking about it in terms of this, the authors I'm teaching. And I'm trying to think about, you know, how can I really empower my students to be change makers and activists? and and to be questioning everything and to really take that on earnestly. So, All right, Will, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nick. Hey, we're back. Uh, with Kiara Bursu. She is a freelance writer living in Oakland, and she uh, wrote this week's cover story for SF Weekly. 
And I want to start out by saying that Kiara came to me with this pitch before all of the protests that erupted in the wake of George Floyd's killing at the hands of Minneapolis police. But the pitch um, was and remained um, how organizers um, have had to adapt to uh, social distancing uh, protocols, shelter in place orders in the time of COVID-19. So um, over the um, past three or so weeks, um, we've seen massive demonstrations in major cities across the country and around the world. Um, and it seems like the demands that the people are making um, are being heard and are at least being considered and politicians are at least paying lip service to some of these demands, like defunding the police. Um, and we've seen some pretty dramatic pictures and, and videos of protests out in the real world, out in, in the streets of our country and, and countries around the world. But one of the things that you talk about in your story is how some organizers who can't make it out to these protests, maybe because they're immunocompromised, maybe because of other reasons have been taking their organizing efforts online and that those online efforts are are not just, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking. They're not just people venting on Facebook and, and then and then going about their day and not not giving it another thought. These these efforts made on Twitter and, and other platforms are actually having a real impact. And you start your story out with an example of that. Could you kinda walk us through the the opening of your story and and what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. So I started with the No New SF Jail Coalition's recent victory with the 850 Bryant Street Jail. 850 Bryant Street has been marked for demolition since 1996. It's seismically unsafe and a dilapidated building. There's reports of noxious fumes and sewage flooding. Um, and the facility is overcrowded. So there's just under 800 people in there. And this movement, not only did it demand that those inside be released, um, but that there will be no jail built in its place and those people who have been inside will not be relocated. Um, so now, from what I know, um, with that having been approved, their, their efforts are going toward making sure that, that people are not being transferred and that those that their demands are being carried through. I first heard about that effort actually through my work with Critical Resistance, which is based in Oakland, and I've done some work with their mail efforts. They, they run a like, coordinated mail effort that gives resources and like, coordinates with inmates across the country. So that was how I first heard about 850 Bryant Street. And, um, the work has been, has been ongoing for quite a while, but it was really incredible and I thought kind of striking to see that they were able to secure that legislative win even within the shelter in place. Um, and I yeah, I think that was largely due to the incredible support that they saw um, on virtual platforms and also using those platforms to amplify demands for call-ins and email, email actions to apply, uh, pressure to legislators. And so that's, that's another thing that is really, um, I've seen a lot of during COVID-19 is the circulation of email scripts. Um, demands for like coordinated call-in actions um and that those some of those things like were part of organizing work before absolutely um and as is a lot of the the social media organizing but i think that it's just gaining ground in a new way right now and 
the accessibility that it affords people who have not previously been able to participate in other ways is being, I think, better recognized. In your story, you talk about people who are holding up signs that, you know, they post on social media in support and in solidarity with um, people marching in the streets and that it's it feels like it's making a difference. It, it feels more inclusive. I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so the at-home actions are one thing that's really interesting that I personally haven't seen much of or um, really any of at all before um, the pandemic. And alongside that, live streams are becoming a really critical tool for engagement. Um, and yeah, I think there's been just a, a broadband effort to, to accommodate people who, whether because of being you know, immunocompromised or for any other host of reasons, um, physical or mental disabilities or, or chemical sensitivities, any of that, um, people who aren't feeling comfortable being in person at this time, those modes of virtual access have become really crucial. And I think people are starting to recognize that there's there's a value in it that's going to live beyond just the pandemic. And also there's a need for it and, and the needs for that kind of accommodation. You also get into some of the new challenges that are arising in this era um, of increased use of social media to promote social justice. Yeah. So, I mean, the biggest challenge that I've heard from the organizers I've spoken to, this is by no means a new challenge, but... Um, co-option of abolitionist agendas that are be- being forwarded right now mm-hmm. um, in the movement for Black Lives. And so seeing public politicians and members of police corps across the country um, making a knee or making public statements against racism or his- and the histories of racism um, in, the- in this country, I think that was the biggest threat that I heard from organizers is making sure that this isn't a push for reform this is a push for abolition and, and a reimagination of public safety. That was one of the main things I heard. Another one is pushing internal infrastructures online um, of these different organizations does does pose security threats. So a few of the organizations I spoke to actually denied comment on their internal communications and were advised against speaking on it at all. It's not clear what, what it what it means to be taking in these third party platforms using tools like zoom or google docs um and the privacy there yeah i mean i can imagine you know it's it's enough of a concern if you're just a, a boring financial management company and you you can get like zoom bombed by some idiot when you're dealing with life or death situations with people who you know are have been incarcerated or have been the victims of state violence, um, the stakes are just so much higher in terms of like security, right? Absolutely. Um, and another thing that I didn't mention in the article is shadow banning, um, which is, you know, the, the rhetoric of these platforms themselves can be extremely, extremely discriminatory and can bar voices out on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and, I saw a lot of the organizers that I follow had posts flagged and taken down um, just over the course of the past few weeks. And so there's there's concerns there, too, about even though these these tools seem largely democratic or like there's something about it that seems to be democratizing 
public action and, and public access, there are still concerns about um, how those platforms can shape and, and meddle with like the content that is seen and that is given traction. I want to thank you for joining us today, Kiara. Um, it's a really great story. You can read it on our website, uh, sfweekly.com. We also have an e-edition that we are publishing in the archives section of our website. Please keep reading for more stories um, like Kiara's. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time. Oh, 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 oh,